The scripture lesson today is from Matthew's Gospel. I'll be reading from the first chapter, verse 18 through 25. Uh, This is Matthew's birth narrative. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph, before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, though, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. Now all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, A virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did just as an angel from God had commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. Joseph called him Jesus. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Now, one problem that might be invisible to you, unless you're a preacher, that we preachers have to deal with uh, many weeks, especially when we attempt to follow the Christian calendar as we prepare for our sermons, is choosing where to stop and start the selection of the particular biblical text that we plan to preach on on any given Sunday. And fortunately or unfortunately, this little book called the Revised Common Lectionary makes suggestions as to where we should stop and start in those those traditional scripture readings that follow the Christian year. And most of the time, I do not balk at where they have chosen to stop and start the various readings of the various texts. They're often for very good reasons and well-thought-out reasons. But today, I have little doubt that they left off the preceding 17 verses in this first chapter of Matthew, because genealogies in the style of the biblical texts, well, how shall we say it? They're not very sexy, and they have a marketing problem. And yet, here in Matthew's gospel, they lay some very important groundwork. The 17 verses we did not read before the seven that we did read. Now, we'll return to those initial 17 verses, but don't worry, I'll summarize it for you. You won't have to endure the begats, all of them. But hold that thought. Here in the verses we did read, in verse 18 through 25, we have this very, how shall we say, otherworldly miraculous-seeming kind of story, a story of angels appearing in dreams, explaining how this immaculate conception occurred via the Holy Spirit, promising that Jesus would save the people from their sins, and all of this in order to fulfill prophecy, we are told. And we American Christians typically do what Americans in general tend to do first in stories where this topic comes up. We focus on the sex. Who had sex? who didn't have sex, and for many Western Christians, their faith has been, become built on these kinds of things, and they get a little bit distracted because they can't get over these non-scientific, nothing short of miraculous parts of this birth story. And the downside of focusing on the difficult-to-believe, non-scientific, virgin birth aspects of this birth story of Jesus uh, is that we can actually, if we focus too much on those, miss the simple, beautiful, fully human, miracle right under your nose parts of the story because we're so caught up on making the story of Jesus' birth special by highlighting, you know, that wow stuff 
that captures our imaginations that we actually sometimes fail to allow the most common human elements of the story to truly inspire us to achieve our own fullest potential in our daily, regular, boring lives. Now, I find a little inspiration. I, I find a little inspiration, rather, for daily living and trying to wrap my head around it, as so many of us spend a great deal of time doing around Jesus and being born of a virgin. But I do find tremendous inspiration when I look closely at the very human, down-to-earth, ordinary details of the story that the narrator here in Matthew's gospel is trying to make sure that we notice. Back to those first 17 verses we didn't read. Okay? It's a genealogy, a family tree of sorts. People are paying places like Ancestry.com now to do this sort of work for them, but this was old school. And so sometimes they are historically and factually accurate in these biblical accounts, and sometimes, how shall we say, they're told with a bit of embellishment, um, reverential license, we could say, ministerial exaggeration even, to prove a theological point. Not only do the birth stories themselves differ between Matthew and Luke's Gospels, but if you look closely, so do their genealogies. They're a little bit different. Now, you can do some digging on your own if you wish, but let me save you some time if you don't want to do the extra work to say that the explanation I find most reasonable between Luke and Matthew's genealogies being different is that Luke was giving Mary the mother of Jesus' genealogy, and Matthew was telling the story from Joseph's perspective and so narrates Joseph's genealogy. So let's just look at what the narrator in Matthew's gospel was trying to tell us right before this birth narrative about Jesus' lineage on Joseph's side of the family. If you go back and do some reading, you'll see names like this. Tamar is mentioned, who was raped by her father-in-law, who then tried to burn her alive. Rahab is mentioned here in the first 17 verses of Matthew 1, who, as you recall, was a prostitute. Ruth, now this is the same Ruth, for which a book of the Bible is named, is mentioned, and she was a foreigner. In fact, a Moabite, the lowest of the low. Nothing good can come from a Moabite. That would have been the common thinking. Then we find the wife of Uriah is mentioned, that being, of course, Bathsheba, who was the very, as, as was the very male-centric chauvinistic practice in the culture of their time, was blamed for the downfall of King David, though it was King David who instigated their whole affair, and then, of course, had her husband killed in battle, she was mentioned. And then Uzziah is mentioned. Notable here is that Uzziah was struck down by God for his arrogance. And then Manasseh is mentioned, the one who restored idol worship and the worship of Baal and was noted as the very worst king ever. <laughs> well, how about that? What kind of family tree is this? What is this narrator here in Matthew's gospel wanting us to learn from these 17 verses that set up the birth narrative in verses 18 through 25? Now, are you starting to see why I wanted to make sure you noticed all of those things before launching into verses 18 through 25? I mean, why in the world you think the author wants us to know about this messy family history of Jesus on Joseph's side? And likely, as I said, many scholars agree, 
this is from Joseph's side of the family tree. I think it's because the author wanted us to know these details because it might help explain why Joseph made the choices that he made. Notably missing from Matthew's birth narrative. Did you, did you read about any mangers there? No. There were no shepherds there, were there? That's it. That's the Christmas story in Matthew. There were no angels. There were no trips to Bethlehem here in Matthew's gospel. We, we find that in Luke. Verses 1 through 17 is the family background, and verses 18 through 24 are all about Joseph. Jesus is born in the middle of one short verse, in verse 25. And Joseph called him Jesus. There it is. Here in Matthew's gospel, Joseph is the one making some choices in this Christmas narrative, this birth narrative. He was faced with a difficult choice and a very easy choice. Jewish law gave men like Joseph, you see, permission to break off the engagement. Read Deuteronomy 22 for extra credit sometime. There, there, there's the permission. He had the full backing of the Jewish law and the culture to leave Mary. In fact, he could have even done this out in public. But Joseph, being a compassionate man, was planning on doing it quietly. Apparently, he didn't want the drama that might otherwise surround this, or who knows what his rationale exactly could have been, but he was planning on leaving her, doing it quietly when he found out she was pregnant. Now, this would have been the easy thing to do, right? Of his two decisions, this would have been the easy one. But he did the much more difficult thing instead. He stayed with his fiancée, who from all outward appearances, well, at least from what everybody in the neighborhood was saying, had been unfaithful to him. This is why Joseph's own vision, his own dream, I think, was so important. This is why the first 17 verses that we did not read, but that I summarized for you about Joseph's family tree, were so important. You see, God's love is born anew into this world, not by perfect people or perfect dreams from perfect family trees in perfect situations. But God's love is delivered and born anew into this world by messy people with questionable backgrounds and pedigrees and judgment who have every right to seek to preserve what tiny little shred of dignity they may have left to their name, but who instead dutifully and quietly do the courageous thing. No angel chorus celebrated Joseph's choice to, be, to believe Mary. There were no neon lights. There were no ticker tape parades. No family meetings that we know of where her family convinced him. Christmas for Joseph began when he trusted the dream, the vision that he had seen on his own. And then he believed what Mary told him about her body and about her baby Curious that today it seems many men still struggle to believe what women tell them about their bodies or their babies. But last week we celebrated Mary's Magnificat, her passionate, poetic song of protest in the face of all that was wrong in her world. But today we celebrate Joseph's quiet, dutiful, yet compassionate and courageous response to stay by Mary's side as she carried and eventually birthed Jesus into this world. God's love gave Mary and Joseph both a vision, a dream, a glimpse of how this child could change the world. And God's love is what compelled them both to stay the course, to make the journey, 
to stay together when everyone else was likely screaming in their ears, run away from one another and take the easy way out, especially those on Joseph's side. And that's how God loves off, God's love often starts. God's love often starts in our dreams or in a vision we catch or in that still small voice somewhere way back there in the back of our hearts or mind. Love whispers a dream. And you know it's love when the dream you dream is more than just about your next promotion. When the dream you dream is more than just about your own career or your next individualized achievement, you know it's about love. Oh, those things are important, but you know it's a God-shaped, God-sized dream. You know it's love when it's a dream that is bigger than just your corner of the world. You know it's a God-sized, God-shaped dream of love when it positively impacts the broader community, the greater good, not only your friends and family, but when it's even good for your enemies, you know it's love. You know it's a God-inspired, God-shaped dream of love when it's not just the ooey-gooey kind of love dripping with sentimentality, but the kind of love that will inspire you even to make incredibly difficult choices instead of taking the easy way out. No one really wants to sign up too readily for these kinds of dreams because, quite frankly, they're frightening. And I think it's important to notice that not only did Joseph have his own dream, his own vision, but he also believed that Mary had a dream and a vision, and he found that sacred connection of the two. It kind of reminds me of a silly story, but I think it proves the point I'm trying to belabor. It was a few days before Christmas. Maybe you heard this before. Humor me if you have. And a woman woke up one morning and told her husband, Honey, I just dreamed that you gave me a pearl necklace for Christmas. What do you think this dream means? <laughs> oh, her husband replied, You'll know the day after tomorrow. The next morning, she turned to her husband again. And she said the same thing. I just dreamed, honey, that you gave me a pearl necklace for Christmas. What do you think this dream means? And her husband said, Well, you'll know tomorrow. And on the third morning, the woman woke up and she smiled at her husband. She says, I just dreamed that you gave me a pearl necklace for Christmas. What do you think this dream means? And he smiled back and said, well, you'll know tonight. And that evening, the man came home with a small package and he presented it to his wife. And she was delighted and thought she saw a little twinkle in his smile more than normal. And she opened it gently. And when she did, she found a book. And the book's title was the meaning of dreams. <laughs> now, I think it's safe to say that the husband did not believe in his wife's dream, at least the way she wanted him to, or at least in how it would come true. But on a serious note, what if the greatest gift that you or I could give someone this year is to believe in their dreams? The greatest gift we can give is to have faith in someone else, to believe in their dreams, even when there seems to be not that much in it for us, but some hard work. Believe in the dreams of the people you love, friends. Believe in the dream of your spouse. Believe in the dream of that special someone. Believe in the dreams of your children. Believe in the dreams of your hero, your leader, your friend. Believe in their dreams. This is the wonder of God's love as seen in the Christmas story that God seeks to work through those dreams and through those relationships. God works through the messy imperfections of family trees that are less than stellar 
where not everybody even gets along. God works through unlikely messengers to bring love into this world. God chooses ordinary people willing to dream dreams and yet make difficult to live with choices when their feet hit the ground in real life. And God works through both the Marys and the Josephs. And we need both Luke's story of Christmas, the Annunciation, and we need Matthew's story of Christmas, Joseph's dream. They are miracle stories, not because of all the magical stars or the method by which the child was conceived, though those things are miraculous, or even the angels' choir singing, or any number of special effects that we have superimposed on this story. The accounts of Jesus' birth are miracle stories because they are stories of down-to-earth, ordinary people who are willing to believe a dream and then make the hard decisions to endure the long, toilsome road until the wonders of God's love were birthed into this world through their own blood, sweat, and even tears. And I don't think Joseph would have been able to believe Mary had it not been for his own very shaky and questionable family tree. I have to think that if he had been from a super successful, scandal-free, well-to-do family, that he just might have walked away from Mary. But the amazing thing about the love of God is that God uses us exactly as we are to transform the world into what it can be. God works through a young, unknown woman and her husband who believes in her, And the miracle is not something that is unrepeatable. This is the good news, friends. This kind of miracle can occur again and again. So believe in the dreams of the persons you love. Believe in love-shaped, God-sized dreams this Christmas. Have the audacity to believe that what you have seen in your own heart or mind but have been too embarrassed to claim is legitimate. Have the faith to believe that the persons you love are dreaming dreams that somehow are connected to your dream. And just watch. The same love that was born into this world this first Christmas can be born again and again. The possibilities are limitless. Well, at least for those who are willing to make the difficult decisions and put in the hard work like Mary and Joseph after they're done dreaming. May God give us the holy imaginations to dream dreams, the courage to tell someone else we love about them, and the discipline to stick together and see them through. The wonders of God's love never cease. Amen.